0: Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Kosowski, here as usual with my favorite co host, Courtney Small.
1: Hello, how are you doing today?
0: Great, how are you?
1: I'm doing very well, thanks.
0: Good. So, uh, we're going to talk some more about new releases later on in the show. Courtney is going to tell us about Jungle Cruise. But first, we're going to talk together about uh, a film called Annette. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival last month. it's last month and now it's August, right? This is the latest film from French director, Léos Carax. He, he's known for a bunch of films, but he's known, the, la- the last film that he made is called Holy Motors and it was in 2012. So if you saw that, you may have an idea of what uh, this is going to be like. Uh, he's He's known for his tortured depictions of love and, well, and that sort of fits the bill but it does a lot it does a lot of other things it stars adam driver and french actress marion cotillard it is a love story of sorts uh, but it's also uh, a lot of things it's a rock opera it's a fairy tale type um, fantastical dream like horror movie nightmare kind of film so uh, let's get back to the rock opera part it uh <laughs> the music was written by the sparks brothers who are basically ron male and russell Mayle. you might remember the name sparks brothers uh, they're the same musicians that were subject the subject of a documentary that was just released earlier this year and it was at hot dog so you may know it so the two brothers and Carax worked on the screenplay It was their original story. And like I said, they wrote, this is the story of two performers and their love story and uh, how the birth of their first child affects their relationship. Basically, uh, I think Courtney and I are going to have a lot to say back and forth. So it's really hard to sum it up, which I think you can probably tell.
1: (laughs) No, I think you've done a a good job uh, summarizing it because it is a film that it goes a lot of places and you know, you say it's a, a rock opera, um, which is a good way to describe it. But also if you're not familiar with um, sparks as a, as a musical entity, as a band, this film will definitely be something different. Like I came in as a, a, a novice. I wasn't um, aware of their, of their music or their style. So, the constant shifting in tones within a particular song, an individual song, takes a bit to get used to. Uh, some songs are are ridiculously catchy and have some great zingers in them. Others are kind of plotting, um, and it's
0: yes, yes, and that's it kind what of I agree.
1: fits the the film's tone itself because there's some moments that are really fascinating and just like wonderful moments of cinema. And then there's other times when you can see that there's a bunch of ideas that are put together, but aren't really fully formed. Like it has, yeah. it, t- it takes a lot of jabs at Hollywood um, and the, the, the good and the bad, especially a lot of the scandals that have happened over the last couple of decades in Hollywood from Me Too to child exploitation, all of this stuff. But then it doesn't quite have anything really deep to say about it. <laughs> it just, it uses no, it more no. like a, a vehicle to get to the next the next scene.
0: Yeah, that, well, that was the thing that struck me about the film is that in many ways um, it was it was very dramatic and um, it, it was very complicated. The visuals you could rely on the visuals to be spectacular and as you say, like great moments of cinema. Um, but then on the other hand, that was mixed with the simplicity of some of the music and in some cases oversimplicity um of some of the music because some of the music was very talky so it's like I, I don't know that this is a song you know this is this is just people sort of melodically talking and uh you know that was a bit off putting um but also the simplicity of the story you know the visuals and stuff were much more complicated than the story and so it also when you consider the characters that sort of gives you a hint as to the style of the film and what's going on in the film because he's playing this um, bitter comedian um who's more of a performance art comedian um but his world is sort of like down in dirty lowbrow and her world she is an opera singer so hers is the world of opera which is more high art and that that to me sort of also summarized along with, you know, the visuals versus the story that this was being, that this was something that was pulling us in two different directions. And the, the, the great challenge of the film was trying to combine this into, <laughs> into, into something that was maybe a, a compromise between the two. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were obviously in love, that there's no, no doubt in the film right but then when it comes to like emerging of anything and that you know maybe you can think about that when it comes to the birth of their first child right?
1: yeah there's a there's a push and pull that goes throughout this film and yes the characters are in in love but at times it's almost a, a satirical commentary on the male ego Um because oh, yes. he's a <laughs> As you mentioned, he's a, a stand-up comedian slash performance artist whose bit is, I guess, uh, a mishmash between Andrew Dice Clay. Um, trying to think of some other more recent comedians, maybe Louis C.K., where they observe life and kind of point out how ridiculous a lot of things are, but then they also view themselves as great individuals. Like you know, I'm I'm telling it like it is, and You guys are fools for worshipping me, but at the same time, you should be worshipping me. That type of dichotomy. And then you have Cotard, who's more, you know, she's a classical opera singer, but she's also a hopeless romantic and is drawn to, I guess you could say, the bad boy ways. And even with their relationship and some of the things that are revealed, some of the timelines never quite fit well for me because it seems at first it kind of felt like it's a very whirlwind romance, but then as things devolve and as uh, you know, their child is born and more secrets are revealed, then you start to question the timelines because some individuals say that they, their actions interceded with their, with the couple's relationship, you know, prior to them getting together and you go, but then that wouldn't justify the child who, I don't know. It's just, there's a lot of little yeah. things which we're not supposed to, to, to nitpick. But I would say that the film also has a great supporting character in The accompaniment who is played by uh, one of the actors from The Big Bang Theory. And he has some really wonderful moments. Um, it's, it's Simon Helberg, that's the the actor. Who plays the accompanist and eventually becomes a conductor but then he's also dropped for good portions of the film so that by the time he comes back in again it doesn't quite feel fully formed and yeah. the, the the arcs that the story takes while i understand it to get to a particular end point it still didn't quite gel but his yeah. moments are really good and i kind of wish there was more of him and you know, just they found a better way to explain that quasi triangle that happens between these three entertainers, these three artists. You should say,
0: yeah, I think I think that can be explained partially uh, by going back to you know the the masculine point of view, and uh, you know when you were mentioning um, comedians that uh, that Adam Driver's character was based on or that reminded us of, you know, that he, he, he reminded us of, um, I would just point to the fact that in the credits um, Adam driver thanked a comedian named Bill Burr and mm-hmm. Bill Burr is seriously, <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if this is what he's really like, but the, the routines of his are just like straight out, misogynistic like he's just a hateful creature (laughs) I can't stand him and it's not that I couldn't stand Adam Driver like I think Adam Driver makes this mishmash work if it wasn't for Adam Driver I would not have followed the story and you know and the mishmash of the story as as much and as closely as I did because it really becomes clear that this is a film about toxic masculinity. It's presented by a male director through this overbearing and it's basically, it becomes his story. It becomes the Adam Driver's character story and that sort of, and his all-consuming character and his all-consuming problems. Then that maybe could explain some of these uh, narrative holes and you know character arcs maybe um but it it just it started to make me nuts it started to make me nuts because i couldn't in a good way like i could it's like a car wreck i couldn't can't get my eyes off the screen i couldn't stop watching um, but it made me nuts it made me nuts in the oh my god this guy is like he's too much sometimes and then because it's Adam Driver, he's able to make his character very vulnerable at other times. You know, he had these little glints and and, and hints of like someone suffering. And it's in so I, I think like it was just a fascinating experience. And I just and despite it driving me crazy like i said it drove me crazy in a good way so i i still would recommend the film because it's just this fascinating and i could see conversations coming out of this but oh, yeah, i could also definitely. see that that the experience cinematically is something that you you walk away from and go wow what just happened to me and that that's a rare thing in cinema
1: yeah um, i definitely would recommend this one it's um, it's, not a, it's a very messy film. Um, I think the, the good parts outweigh the bad, but as you have noted, you can't take your eyes off it. It's, it's something very unique in how it's conceived, constructed. Adam Driver is, is brilliant in, in this film. Like he, he carries the film. Even when the film gets really silly, um, he still keeps it grounded. With his performance yes. he, he's fully yes. committed yes. to whatever it is um, you know i can see the comparisons to to bill burr although i think bill burr is is far more compassionate you know <laughs> burr, as, as, as 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 brutal as bill burr can be um he's one of those people that you that, at least to me that you know his stuff can be harsh and i don't necessarily always agree with it but i never feel like it's coming from a malicious place whereas Adam driver's character i feel the venom you know oh. and, and this is like deep-rooted venom and it's interesting because he does have some moments of of vulnerability um where i guess his ego has taken him to a place where you know he can he can't really find what he's looking for because he's almost gone too far in a particular direction but i think those moments work best when he has someone to play off of. Um, and I'm thinking like towards the ladder, there's one scene towards the end of the film um, that I thought was really well done where he's still trying to show a bit of humanity mm-hmm. with, with Annette and it's just not getting, getting, I anywhere. think I know
0: the scene. Yeah, yeah. I completely yeah. agree. With yeah. you, you know, and, and it just makes me like fall to pieces thinking of it.
1: Yeah. It's like a, it's a, it's a attractive. great little standout moment. That's very emotional, very touching. Um, and almost kind of feels at odds <laughs> with some of the other yeah. portions of this film, but that's just it's, again just the way how the the film is is designed. But there's yeah, I, when I think back to it, there's a lot of great moments that I that I think back to, um, and it's it's interesting. It's not um, Krax's best work. Um, I would say it's probably visually, I feel like his stamp is all over it, but. You could tell that um, the Sparks Brothers were kind of controlling the narrative and probably wrote most of the the script because it 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 doesn't feel like how he would have fully approached um, these this kind of turbulent tale of of love. Visually, it's it's him all the way. Like you know, there's the tracking shot at the beginning where they're leaving the studio and you get introduced to all the players and stuff. That's really interesting and entertaining, the, the stuff on the boat works. Um, some of the imagery is just just great, but narratively it's just, it's, it's a really choppy story. So you just have yeah. to kind of go in knowing that you're gonna be in for a, a wild, but very bumpy ride. <laughs>
0: yeah, I agree. It just, it makes you wonder um, when you collaborate with someone on a script. So he collaborated on the script. With, uh, with the Sparks brothers, so it makes you wonder like, how much is give and take in, in that kind of process, right? And how much would he rely on them because they wrote the music? Yeah, in terms of a rock opera, it, it, the rock opera is dependent on the music as well, right? And so it makes you wonder how much of that happened as well. And it's his first English language film. Right. So there's that consideration. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying anything like against what you just said. I I completely agree with what you just said. But these factors are there. Um, And, you know, just I don't want to end on a bad note, but that sometimes the music made me nuts in a bad way.
1: Yeah, no, no, it's not. It's I don't think it's ending on a bad note, but it's it's just kind of letting everyone know that you're, you're in for a mixed bag you know there's yeah some of the some of the songs are are really great really catchy others as, as you noted earlier barely feel like a fully realized song and even if they're speaking kind of melodically it's still not hitting there's right. so they, like they there's a reference in the opening song where they they talk about how you know things will be happening in a lower key which i think uh, is a cheeky
0: yeah a
1: cheeky <laughs> way of saying you know you're not going to get the same type of melodies that you get from, from other musicals. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, it, it works at times. It doesn't work, but I think it's always fascinating to watch.
0: Yes. Highly recommend that I think we both highly, highly recommend Annette. It's opening on August the 6th and uh, it's going to be on Amazon.
1: Yep. It's going to be on Amazon prime um, as of August 20th, I believe so if you don't get a chance to see it in theaters or it's not playing at a theater quite near where you, you live, then it's, you can watch it on prime as well.
0: Yeah. I hope you have a big TV. Whoever's out there listening I hope you have a big TV Mm because this is, this is quite, uh, this quite incredible cinematically as we've noted. So yeah, (laughs) let's move on.
1: So the film that I will briefly talk about um, that's out in theaters now, and you can, I guess, rent on Disney Plus as part of their premium access is Jungle Cruise. And it's the the latest in Disney's trend of turning theme park rides into feature films. Uh, this one stars Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt, and uh, Johnson plays Frank Wolf, who's a I guess a boat captain on the Amazon River. And he's a bit of a, a swindler. You know, and he's trying to uh, he owes money to this harbor master played by Paul Giamatti for this new engine. So he's trying to swindle money left and right. And he thinks that he's found his new prey in Emily Blunt, who plays Lily Houghton and her and uh, Jack Whitehall, who plays her brother McGregor. And they are both they've both come from London to the Amazon in search of this magical tree mythical tree um, that's referred to as tears of the moon and apparently the petals when plucked you know can uh, cure all illness so it's you know people have been searching for decades for it there was a, a great conquistador who had apparently found it way back when and then something happened and a curse was put on him and his whole crew Uh, So Dwayne Johnson doesn't believe that anyone can find this thing, but he agrees to take them down the river because again, he needs the money. Uh, Also there's another individual, a German aristocrat played by Jesse Plemons, uh, who's a great actor that many people will remember because he kind of looks like Matt Damon, but he's very talented in in his own right. Uh, And he plays Prince Joachim and he's looking for the um, same tree basically to use it to rule the world you know as most villains do Uh, and that pretty much sets the stage for this adventure that uh, Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt's characters find themselves on it's it's very much in the vein of Pirates of the Caribbean or um, The Mummy franchise so it's that type of swashbuckling adventure mixed with comedy, mixed with elements of supernatural villains uh, flying about. I, I like Jungle Cruise. It's it's not a perfect film, but it is, it is a fun summer blockbuster. Um, Emily Blunt and um, Dwayne Johnson are both talented, but really charming actors. And it's kind of interesting because Emily Blunt gets to be more of like the Indiana Jones type of character, whereas um, Johnson is more of like the the big teddy bear, you know, the kind of fearsome on the outside. Yes, he can fight, but really he's more sensitive than Emily Blunt's character. And Emily Blunt (laughs) being that the film is set in like 1916, she, as a woman, you know, isn't taken seriously at any point. Like she's not allowed into all the scientific um, clubs that she really should be in. And, you know, people underestimate her at every turn, but she's... More fearless and, as I said, very much a a swashbuckler herself, um, kind of like Indiana Jones, but instead of being afraid of snakes per se, she can't swim, so like her her weakness is water, you know a minor a minor thing that comes in into play once or twice, but overall it's it's just a fun movie it's one that you you don't really have to think too in depth about because you know there's some plot holes that really don't connect, but it's a fun. Disney film that the whole the whole family can enjoy.
0: Wow, this sounds good. I mean, it's amazing how many stars they can attract. Yes. to these these kinds of films, and I mean that, that's a certain, that's quite the range there. Emily Blunt and, and Dwayne the Rock Johnson,
1: right? Yeah, and I I would say the the complaint I have about this film is that for a, a cast that features so many talented actors, like Edgar uh, Ramirez is also in it. Paul Giamatti is really underutilized in it. Um, he's kind of there for a couple of gags. And then Jesse Plemons, who's who's really good, you know, he, he's hem, he's hemming it up as the villain, but he, he's doing it in a very entertaining way. He doesn't get enough screen time either because they have to kind of fit in enough of the conquistador who's played by um, Edgar Ramirez. His spirit and his crew, again, like Pirates of the Caribbean, the, 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 uh, the dead are now... Kind of temporarily back, and so there's all that aspect, and I kind of wish there was a little more for for Jesse Plemons just kind of hamming it up with the the German accent. So they don't yeah. quite utilize all the great talent that they have in the film, but it's fun.
0: Yeah, and so it's entertaining for the adults as well yeah. as the kids.
1: Oh yeah, I think I probably more so for the the adults. I I, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend like young kids watch it because I think there's some parts that are a little too scary for really young kids, but Ten and up, I would say, should be should be fine with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting that, I mean, how long have they been making? I guess it's been a while that they Disney has been making movies out of rides.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the Pirates franchise was the most successful that they've they've had to date. But yeah, I think they've done a, a couple of other ones. So they they find ways to always, you know, sell their products in more ways than in one.
0: good thing it's entertaining right Mm -hmm. okay so after after I I finished watching Annette I mean I didn't plan this but I ended up spending some time in some other cinematic twisted worlds if I can call them that (laughs) Um, I checked out some films they're on the Criterion channel and the Criterion channel has put together they put together like special series and right now they have a series called Neo-Noir. Neo-Noir, for people who don't know, um, of course, stems from noir. Film noir was uh, the name given to a certain type of film that was produced in, the, in Hollywood in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, that's pretty much the heyday of it. But that, there, there were certain films uh, that sort of fit together in terms of their vision and their their cinematic style, like their actual visual style. Um, they were very moody and dark. There was a cynical edge and things were like, but it was presented in this very seductive way, like gorgeous black and white um, cinem- um, cinematography that was very, you know, black and white, lots of shadows, it was gorgeous and they they ended up having some stars like even though this was like sort of viewed as this sort of like b side of things um sort of the darker side of hollywood you'd still get the big star the names of the day but you also had actors who sort of just specialized in that kind of film they ended up really enjoying being Nastier characters, or characters with a bit more umph to them, like a bit more. They weren't because Hollywood had, you know, only good guys, and like all the good guys always won, and people were very nice people. Whereas in this in this case, the people had an edge to them. They weren't always good people, and of course you had, you know, the famous femme fatale, and the femme fatale was always this woman. Who was in a lot of trouble? Didn't lead her life in a very good way, and then that led to like certain conventional things happening. Even though it was unconventional, this this uh, you know, the noir was unconventional. Certain things you could come to expect would happen to a femme fatale, and uh, and of course it it generally had this like hard boiled cop type, you know, who who had this like bitter edge to him. Or private investigators especially like Philip Marlowe this was the era of Philip Marlowe and of course the person who created Philip Marlowe which was Raymond Chandler through his books right and um so what you have like this happened generally in the 70s is that but it happens now and noir like you can see it now it, that sensibility happens now but there was this Sort of mini heyday of neo noir that happened in the seventies, and this is uh, a lot of um, a lot of the films in this series are from that point. Um, and in a couple of cases, especially two films that you know really um, that I really liked particularly were remakes or were connected in some way to a film that was from the noir era. So, for example, Farewell, My Lovely, which was based also on the Raymond Chandler novel of the same name, um, was previously made in the 40s, 50s era uh, under the title Murder, My Sweet. And so it had the detective, but he was more clean cut and stuff. Like he was more in that 40s, 50s vein. So when it was remade in the 70s, Um, You had Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum, was he was a star in the 40s and 50s, and he was someone you you could associate with noir. So it was interesting. It's interesting to bring him into the 70s when he's older. And so when the remake happened, Farewell, My Lovely features Mitchum as Philip Marlowe. And this time he adds this even grittier edge to it because he's older. And when he talks about being weary, you can see it on his face. Like this director is just loving showing close-ups of Mitchum. Um, it's the story of it's a convoluted story. So it's basically the story of how he gets hired by this this man to find someone that he was in love with. The man has just come out of jail. He hasn't seen this woman Velma for seven years. He, uh, Velma has stopped communicating with him and so it becomes this convoluted story of trying to find Velma but of course every step and turn he takes something. Somebody's beating up on him and it's just it's hilarious to see Mitch up. This is like whenever the, the guy who hired him checks in on him because he's really tough and scary whenever he checks in on him, and Mitchum goes, come on, I've been beaten, I've been shot at, I've been, you know, like, give me a break here. So, um, and what what's wonderful about this film also is that the director, like, lovingly, uh, just lovingly creates these cityscapes. Uh, it's, it's color, of course the film is in color, but lovingly creating cityscapes you know at night but tinged with neon he just loves neon and one of the fun things about the film is looking and seeing where and when neon pops up because it's not just you know beautiful and creates a certain atmosphere but it just shows up in all these like places and yeah that one was a lot of fun um and the other one, which is a lot of fun, and I've got to admit, sorry, I'm, I'm being a, it, it goes, it reminds me of when I was a kid, and uh, when I, when it first came out, Body Heat, Body Heat with Kathleen Turner and Oh, that's William a classic,
1: Hurt. a modern yeah. classic, I would say, yeah.
0: It's a, yeah, it's a modern classic, and like, the, I'm apologizing because I'm going to like drool over the young William Hurt, but this film, I mean, this film lovingly knows how to how to what well, both of them. It's a very steamy, sexy film. Um, it knows exactly how to turn up the heat with both of these. It's hot as hell. It during the course of the film, like it's just hot outside, right? So, um, and it's a remake of a film called Double Indemnity, classic noir film, absolute classic. Except that you know this one has this extra sizzle to it uh, so you know and and the great thing is that the selection on the criterion channel it, i'm like i'm really impressed because it's it's quite vast you know it includes things like this film that i don't know i was having a hard time finding uh called across 110th street uh recently the great actor yafik Koto died and He's in this film in the 70s. So you see a young Yaphet Khoda, people who don't know, one of the, the most famous things he did uh, was he was in this TV show called Homicide Life on the Street. But he's, he's been in a lot of films um, and he's in this film and uh, with Anthony Quinn and Anthony Francisco. And one of the things this film does is that it combines elements of black exploitation and noir. So it's it's really interesting to see how neo noir how flexible it is how people you know when they're riffing off they're using it and they're riffing off it now um, or m- more recently and and even now you'll see that but then there's even a, like a queer film called Swoon and even like you know more political kind of stuff like Night Moves and Cutter's Way and and that's one thing about neo noirs because they they were, filmmakers were more liberated in the 70s. And this was sort of the time of filmmakers cutting loose from everybody and just doing their, wanting to do their own thing. And then you get a lot of creativity. They really got to expand the reach and what they did with noirs. A lot of social commentary, a lot of political commentary. And like I said, you know, all this, these other, these other myriad ways of presenting this sort of more cynical view of life.
1: Yeah. It sounds like a good cross section of, of films for, for people to check out. Like, Even though it's all neo-noir, but um, all shown in like different, different lights.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I just feel though, like we, we started with cynicism and we're ending with cynicism.
1: <laughs> Sometimes you need that. Sometimes that makes for, for great cinema. Watching, watching films that are, um, you know, taking you to that kind of gloomy place at times actually sometimes makes you happy in an odd way.
0: <laughs> it's true, actually. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, on that note, laughing as we are. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Frameline and we'll catch you next time.